The destruction of the early Puritan American views of the military and of biblical voluntary militias, things we've described in the first section of this topic, began in this country with the first skirmish of the First World War. Now, not World War I, mind you, but what was perhaps the first truly world war. And here's that story. In the 1750s, the French began to solidify and fortify their claims along the rivers of what is today western Pennsylvania. Some Virginians viewed this rightly as a competitive threat to their markets for trade with Indians, but especially also for real estate. A chief among the motivated was a massive land speculation group subsidized by government land grants from the Crown. Uh, it was called the Ohio Company of Virginia. The acting governor of Virginia, who was Robert Dinwiddie, himself was given shares in order to keep him interested in the company's fate. With orders from the Crown to prevent French encroachments upon the British territory, by force if necessary, Dinwiddie still could not fund a large enough force to be a menace. So he bought some time and sent out an emissary to advise the French to desist. The emissary he chose was a lanky 21-year-old army officer, an early heir of a fairly uh, substantial estate connected to the Ohio Company through his family. He had a lust for military fame very similar to Hamilton that we've talked about in this project, and he jumped at the chance to go. With a seasoned Iroquois leader named Tanagrishan as a tracker and a guide, that young man led a tiny troop westward into the woods. Unskilled in French or diplomacy and untested in battle, he was unaware of what he was about to set in motion. Meanwhile, the French, upon hearing of this coming British emissary, decided the most prudent course would be to send their own emissary out to meet him. And so out goes an officer named Joseph de Jumonville, along with 35 men. Word soon made it back to the British troop that it was being scouted. Tanagrishan quickly located the French and led his troop, along with this officer, to their encampment. But they got too close. Upon being discovered, the officer commanded his company to fire upon the French. Once they realized they were surrounded with no avenue for retreat, the French asked for quarter. Jamonville, who was wounded, presented his diplomatic letter. The British officer accepted it, walked back a few paces, and began reading it. And then to everyone's shock, Tanagrishan approached the wounded Jamonville and said, You are not yet dead, my father and he hacked the Frenchman's skull several times with his hatchet, literally washed, the man's, uh, washed his own hands in the man's brains. It was an Iroquois blood atonement ritual. Tanagrishan had been holding a personal vendetta against the French, and he used Dinwiddie's troop to put him in a position to make that sacrifice. The kill would have much larger consequences. Upon hearing of their defeat, the French prepared a much larger detachment headed by Jamonville's half-brother, who was eager for revenge. A month later, they cornered the British troops in a makeshift fort at Great Meadow. Everything went wrong for the British. Their Indian allies left them and, in fact, switched sides. Their provisions were meager, many of their animals died, they were outnumbered, and their enemy had the advantageous position in the woods nearby and it began pouring rain, rendering the exposed British muskets useless.
whereby the woods provided the French dry enough shelter to fire volleys for some time. Worse yet, the demoralized British fighters at last broke into the large stock of the only supply that they had left, rum. And with no time, they were outgunned, soaked, beaten physically and morally, and half of them were drunk. At 8 o'clock that night, a call rang out for the negotiation that no one knew would change the course of history. The French offered very generous terms of surrender if the British would leave Ohio Territory for the space of a year. The British emissary's friend and translator returned that night with a copy of the terms, and the two struggled to read this rain-soaked document written in French by candlelight. For some reason, apparently, they didn't realize that the doc document described the, the death of Jamonville a month earlier as not merely a kill, but as an assassination. And by signing that document, as he did a few minutes before midnight on July 3rd, 1754, that 21-year-old George Washington officially declared the British crown responsible for an act of war against France. The next morning, a not-so-happy 4th of July, the beaten British began their journey back to Virginia with the news. It was the beginning of the Seven Years' War, the French and Indian War, as we call it, which would spread throughout the world, sucking in Prussia, Austria, parts of the leftover Holy Roman Empire, Sweden, Russia, the Netherlands, Spain, India, the Caribbean, the Philippines, and even more than that. It was truly the first world war, and it was truly sparked by Washington's ambling into the frontier, seeking glory as a military agent of a British public-private partnership, the Ohio Company. That war would lead to the compilation of such massive debts on the part of the British that the Crown began looking throughout its empire for, nor for new sources of revenue. When it was realized in the 1760s that the American colonies were the least taxed by far, a wave of tariffs and other measures were instituted. These led to revolts like the Boston Tea Party and eventually the Declaration of Independence, the American Revolution, and thus, of course, America's own war debts and then the problems with Hamilton, the central banks, etc. In short, no Jamonville, no war, no debt, and no centralized government in America. Now that may sound like a stretch to many listeners, and indeed we can't be so reductionistic as to cite Jamonville's death as the cause of the American Revolution, and certainly not all of our tyrannical woes today. But were it not for the lust for war fame, a kid itching to fight in order to make a name for himself, things would have been very much different and very likely very much more peaceful. Even the definitive historian on that Seven Years' War, who's Fred Anderson, says this, without the Seven Years' War, American independence would surely have been long delayed and achieved, if at all, without a war. Indeed, it was not only America. Again, quoting Anderson, he says, it would be difficult to imagine the French Revolution occurring as it did and when it did, or for that matter, the wars of Napoleon, Latin America's first independence movements, the uh, transcontinental juggernaut that Americans call westward expansion, and the, and the hegemony of, of English-derived institutions and the English language north of the Rio Grande. All of this can be laid, at least in part, on the use of military force to gain advantage in speculative markets, 
to enrich a big corporation and its interested shareholders in high government positions. And young Washington strode right into the midst of this practice with his brothers Lawrence and Augustine on the corporate side and he on the military. It was this same Washington who would later team with Hamilton in the call for a strong national military industrial complex, as we've seen in previous topics, built on the back of the brand new constitutional powers for a standing army. But there was still a significant faction, a majority in fact, that expected traditional freedoms. As we've seen, the battle over the Constitution produced numerous responses on this issue. The epitome of that opposition was inscribed by Benjamin Workman, who was a math professor in Philadelphia, writing under the name of Philadelphiensis. And he says, quote, My fellow citizens, the present time will probably form a new epoch in the annals of America. This important, this awful crisis bids fair to be the theme of our posterity for many generations. We are now publicly summoned to determine whether we and our children are to be free men or slaves, whether liberty, which we have so recently purchased with the blood of thousands of our fellow countrymen, is to terminate in blessing or curse. In regard to religious liberty, the cruelty of the new government will probably be felt sooner in Pennsylvania than in any other state in the Union. The number of religious denominations in this state who are principled against fighting or bearing arms will be greatly distressed indeed. In the new Constitution there is no declaration in their favor, but on the contrary, the Congress and President are to have an absolute power over the standing army, navy, and militia. And the President, or rather Emperor, is to be the Commander-in-Chief. Now I think that it will appear plain that no exemption whatever from militia duty shall be allowed to any set of men, however conscientiously scrupulous they may be, against bearing arms. Indeed, from the nature of the qualifications of the President, we may justly uh, infer that such an idea is altogether preposterous. He is by profession a military man, and possibly an old soldier. Now such a man from his natural temper necessarily despises those who have a conscientious aversion to a military profession, which is probably the very thing in which he principally piques himself. So many state delegates so greatly feared the military power surrendered to the Constitution that the appeasement measurements for the Anti-Federalist, which is the Bill of Rights by the way, specifically addressed the issue. Not many people realize that the Second Amendment, so revered by us conservatives today, had roots in the repeated warnings against the dangers of a standing army. The congressional discussions of this amendment reveal that the original intent of the right to bear arms was a potential defense against our own federal government. It was meant specifically to alleviate the historical threat which the Constitution had just enshrined as a federal power. While the final form of that amendment may not be explicit enough for us to see it, the congressional debate makes it very clear. Uh, Elbridge Gerry of Massachusetts introduced it, saying this, This Declaration of Rights, I take it, is intended to secure the people against the maladministration of the government. If we could suppose that in all cases the rights of the people would be attended to, the occasion for guards of this kind would be removed. What, sir, is the use of a militia? It is to prevent the establishment of a standing army, the bane of liberty. Whenever governments mean to invade the rights of people, they always attempt to destroy the militia in order to raise an army on their ruins. 
This was actually done by Great Britain at the commencement of the late revolution. They used every means in their power to prevent the establishment of an effective militia to the eastward. Later in that discussion, Mr. Jerry moved to change the language so that a standing army could not even be considered as secondary security to militias. Aidanus Burke of South Carolina preferred to be more explicit. He actually proposed an amendment which added this, quote, a standing army of regular troops in time of peace is dangerous to public liberty and such shall not be raised or kept up in time of peace but from necessity and for the security of the people nor then without the consent of two-thirds of the members present in both houses and in all cases the military shall be subordinate to the civil authority thus it's clear that the second amendment was in, uh, intimately related to the standing army powers delegated to the central government by the constitution itself this view was maintained for several years afterward St. George Tucker, who was a prominent professor of law at the College of William and Mary, later a federal district court judge, assumed the same connection between individuals' right to bear arms and the threat of a standing army. In his 1803 edition of Blackstone's Commentaries, he called our Second Amendment the, quote, true palladium of liberty. For, quote, whenever standing armies are kept up, and the right of people to keep and bear arms is, under any color or pretext whatsoever, prohibited. Liberty, if not already annihilated, is on the brink of destruction. In regard to the original intent, a mere amendment would not be enough to withstand the military powers that its larger brother, the Constitution itself, gave to the new central government. This problem is best illustrated with what I call a tale of two rebellions, one taking place prior to and the other after the constitutional settlement. In the first, the lack of central military powers ultimately left the decision to form a militia up to the people of the state. And in the second, the national government used its coercive power to force men into an army of 13,000 people to squash a tax revolt. The first is the oft-maligned Shays' Rebellion. Granted, there were revolutionary undertones with parts of the Shays' movement and likely more than undertones among a few of the rebels themselves. But the, re the rebellion has largely been understood only according to the propaganda of its enemies. That is, until fairly recently, anyway. Uh, Leonard Richards' work, Shays' Rebellion, The American Revolution's Final Battle, uh, covers this story. The story commonly runs that western Massachusetts farmers were heavily indebted to the eastern banks. When time came to collect those debts, the farmers could not repay, and so they revolted in this quasi-class war against private property owners. George Washington's friend, the former General Henry Knox, warned him at the time of a, uh, uh, that there was a proto-communistic uprising. In a letter he said this, they feel at once their own property compared with the opulent and their own force and they are determined to make use of the latter in order to remedy the former. Their creed is that the property of the United States has been protected from the confiscations of Britain by the joint exertions of all and therefore ought to be the common property of all. Now this is how the story was told to George Washington and how it was told pretty much ever since. But Knox was primarily motivated in pushing for a stronger union, and he knew he had to get Washington on board for any such venture. And thus he stretched as far as he could, and what he didn't say is as important as what he did. Here's the rest of the story in a nutshell. 
Like other states, Massachusetts had helped fund the American Revolution with that wretched excuse for money, colonial scrip. It was so overinflated after the war that it was sold on the speculators market for fractions of a penny on the dollar. This money virtually died, but it was only mostly dead. Many of those Western farmers and especially former soldiers who were paid almost exclusively with that worthless paper suffered through the inflationary period. They couldn't get, worth, get rid of those worthless scraps fast enough. But a cabal of Boston speculators and other investors sat holding that worthless paper, investing it up, eating it up, hoping that it would recover. In which case, those speculators, for a very handsome profit, and in, and in the case of the more conservative bankers, just to save themselves from massive losses. The cabal then made its move. No doubt they were much better connected in the state assembly than these frontier farmers were. The investors got a law passed that said the worthless script should, should be redeemed at face value. And worse yet, all interest retroactively had to be paid in silver. It was a rigged market if there ever was one. But it didn't stop there. To pay these now massively, artificially overvalued investments, the assembly raised taxes, the vast majority of which would fall on the common people, including the Western farmers. It was nothing short of a massive bailout for failed Boston investors. And worse yet, it double punished the farmers who were forced to use the money in its devalued state to begin with, and now were being forced to pay it off at face value, plus the interest in silver, to the very people who forced them to suffer through its demise. It was even worse yet. The taxes only got passed because the Senate rammed through a self-interested governor. The former governor, John Hancock, sympathized with the soldiers, especially, and had refused to enforce the collection of taxes in, for, for some time, uh, and he was very popular. But an illness forced him from running again in 1785. The new governor himself was a holder of over 3,000 pounds of that debased money, ready to make a killing on the enforcement of the taxes. He immediately began enforcement not only of the taxes, but of all past taxes that had not been collected as well. This was more than many of the country people were able or willing to pay, certainly willing to tolerate. And it's understandable, therefore, why a revolt broke out. It was not a proto-communist movement. It was a tax revolt. But more to the point is the reaction of the organized to the organized revolts by the former Revolutionary War Captain Daniel Shays. When the governor tried to raise a militia from the state's ranks, it failed miserably. The state petitioned Congress. Its sympathizers in Congress even lied, saying they needed help with Indian wars. Congress pledged 1,300 troops, but Massachusetts had to raise half. Congress could only uh, convince only about 100 of its own soldiers to go. Back in Boston, there was a decent response, but the western counties largely ignored the governor. Out of over 600 war veterans, 23 showed up. One historian relates, quote, Baron von Steuben, who had served under Washington, identified the problem in an article signed Belisarius. Massachusetts had 92,000 militiamen on its rolls. Why did the state need militia support from Congress? He provided the correct answer to this. The government was not representative of the opinions of the people. A group of Boston merchants then paid uh, former generals Benjamin Lincoln and William Shepard to get involved, and they were able eventually from the urban ranks to raise a combined 4,000 men from Boston and Springfield. 
Shepard beat Shays to the Springfield Armory and illegally, that is against orders and without the required congressional approval, raided the armory and waited for the approaching Shays forces. When they did approach, Shepard fired, quote, warning shots that happened to kill four men and wound 20. And this began the decline of the resistance, which was over within a month. Now, whatever may be said about either side in these skirmishes, the central fact to take away from all this is how difficult it was to raise an army for a corrupt cause before the Constitution was in place. Granted, the corrupt forces still eventually won out, but even this was a function of powerful centralized controls at the state level. First was the imposition of the colonial fiat money to begin with, and then the bailout laws for these bankers and speculators and the centralizing of the whole state's legal system largely under the power of the people in Boston. Even here, out of 92,000 enrolled militiamen, only a tiny fraction was willing to support that cause. And the corruption didn't stop the Bostonian bailout and its mercenary militia. It continued in Knox's leveraging of the crisis to convince Washington into having a constitutional convention. This is again Knox's words from a letter. What is to give us security against the violence of lawless men? Our government must be braced, changed, or altered to secure our lives and property. The men of property and the men of station and principles there are determined to endeavor uh, to establish and protect them in their lawful pursuits. And what will be efficient in all cases of internal commotions or foreign invasions, they mean that liberty shall form the basis. Liberty from an equal and firm administration of law. They wish for a, quote, general government of unity, as they see that the local legislatures most naturally and necessarily tend to the general government. Urged by others uh, was well, and not to mention his own predilections for stronger central government, Washington bit. And you know the rest of the story. We got that general, uh, that government of general unity along with its new military powers, including a standing army and central control over state militias. In light of this new government, we now move on to the second rebellion in this tale of two, and that is the Whiskey Rebellion of 1792. The situation was very much similar to Shays. The government, national government now as opposed to the state, had now centralized all of the war debts from the revolution, and Hamilton was seeking new sources of revenue to pay them off so that the bankers get their, their share. He studied how best to raise taxes while angering the fewest people. His answer was what we would today call a sin tax, a tax on distilled spirits. Madison agreed, surprisingly quickly, and the two rammed the bill through Congress. But it was not accepted as wise by everyone. Senator, Senator William McClay of Pennsylvania wrote a startlingly startlingly accurate prophecy in his journal, quote, War and bloodshed are the most likely consequence of this. Within a few months of the bill taking effect, reports of a revolt were reaching Washington. Tax collectors were shunned and threatened. By the following summer, some collectors and other agents had been tarred and feathered. Some had been beaten and whipped. Opposition spread, especially west of Appalachia and in nearly every state. Some states refused to enforce the tax at all, and in conjunction with other concerns, groups of Georgians and Kentuckians were forming secession movements. Instead of rescinding or even reconsidering the tyrannical tax, the administration planned stiff coercion. 
Hamilton, who was eager as always to impose his will by force, immediately called for a swift and harsh military solution. Washington welcomed whatever was necessary to suppress revolts, as long, he said, as the solution was constitutional. Before all-out military suppression could take place, therefore, the administration needed at least two things. It needed to appear to the public as having attempted a peaceful solution, and it needed to constitutionally expand its military raising powers so that it could draft soldiers by compulsion. The draft powers came with two militia acts of 1792, whereas the Constitution had already centralized the military powers, it generally left the power to call the militia within the powers of Congress. And then it was only a call, not a compulsion. The first Militia Act of 1792 remedied that first problem, delegating the power to the president to call up the militia to repel invasions, etc. Uh, this was ostensibly in response to Indian wars again in Northwest Territory, but the statute included language directly applicable to the tax revolts of late. The president could call up the militia whenever the, the laws of the United States, it said, shall be opposed or the execution thereof obstructed in any state by combinations too powerful by the suppressed, uh, to be suppressed by the ordinary course of judicial proceedings. The Second Militia Act ensured that such a call would be answered because it by decree conscripted every able-bodied male between 18 and 45 years of age. Congressmen and senators, however, were conveniently accepted into their uh, respective state militias. Uh, and that act provided some unifying structure throughout that process. And with great irony, this conscription, which as we've seen before is a form of slavery, applied to, quote, each and every free, able-bodied white male citizen. Within months, Hamilton began drafting a proclamation to be made by Washington condemning the revolts in western Pennsylvania. Made a national broadside on September 15th of 1792, the proclamation condemned the tax revolts as, quote, contrary to the duty that every citizen owes his country. Ignoring the obvious imposition of the tax itself, the, later, the letter praised, quote, the moderation which has been heretofore shown on the part of the government, and promised every necessary step would be taken, and, quote, all lawful ways and means will be strictly put in execution to enforce the collection of the taxes. Hamilton was already ready for the military option, but the time was not quite ripe for it. Hamilton eventually ramped up a campaign of propaganda and actually outright deception to move the national mentality toward his goal. Recalling the earlier discussion of the different periods in his life we talked about in chapter four, uh, we, saw, we saw Hamilton engaging in general attack on his political opponents as agents of the French Revolution, atheism, anarchy, all of it was false. His response to the Whiskey Rebellion fits perfectly into that mold. And with the multiple efforts at secession and refusal to pay the tax, and now the militia acts in place, Hamilton sensed a, a perfect opportunity for successful assertion of federal dominance. His campaign deceptively portrayed the rebellion as uniquely located in a few western Pennsylvania counties, although he knew otherwise that the opposition was widespread. He pulled out the conspiracy theory card, claiming that these revolts were the work of a few local elites and, as he put it, malcontent persons aiming to confirm, inflame, and systematize the spirit of opposition. Washington concurred with Hamilton's sentiments. 
He feared the rebellion was fomented by French revolutionary-style activism in political clubs that arose in the wake of a visit to the U.S. by French Ambassador Charles Gannett. The uh, conspiratorial paranoia is evident in Washington's own letters. The clubs, he said, were designed, quote, primarily to sow the seeds of jealousy and distrust among the people of the government and to spread, quote, nefarious doctrines with a view to poison and discontent the minds of the people. Both Hamilton and Washington pretended that the whole political fabric of America hung on suppressing this allegedly small local rebellion. Washington feared anarchy and confusion, as he put it. Hamilton went over the top, writing, quote, it appears to me that the very existence of government demands this course. In the same letter to Washington on August 2nd of 1794, Hamilton provided a very specific plan of action for raising the militia of several states. That is, the raising of at least 12,000 troops to shock and awe the rebels. Newspapers picked up the French conspiracy motif and the exaggeration decrying, quote, total subversion of government uh, due to the sans culottes of Pittsburgh. And yet, despite the alleged threat to the whole foundation and existence of government itself, Hamilton revealed the real issue at the root of the administration's firmness. Quote, the immediate question is whether the government of the United States shall ever raise revenue by any internal tax. Determined to solidify and uphold the central power, Hamilton was willing to exercise another, the military power, and shed American blood. But the military means to the end couldn't be on the surface of the program, lest that administration risk alienating the public. And this is not to say they respected the will of the people by any means. Hamilton himself would uh, write Washington later saying that he had, quote, long since learned to hold popular opinion of no value while pursuing his own unpopular agendas. Instead, they saw public opinion as an obstacle to be maneuvered and to be manipulated. And thus they began preparing for war as much as possible. And yet going through the motions on the surface required by a peaceful solution with the mind that these motions were certainly destined to fail. Hamilton went so far as purposely to undermine peace negotiations with a series of letters under the pseudonym of Tully, again propagandizing the public with a conspiracy plot. Around the same time, he was having General Henry Lee begin the draft and prepare those troops with the command to keep it secret and to post-date all of his written orders to September 1st to make it look as if the administration had not been planning a military attack the whole time. The whole effort was a public facade. According to the historian Thomas Slaughter, for, quote, par uh, particular reasons of a, pro of a political nature, no one was to know that the decision to raise an army had been made before August 25th. The peace negotiations were a sham, but a necessary political maneuver to forestall criticism of the administration's policy. It must appear that the president had made every effort to settle the dispute without resort to arms, even though he privately longed to teach the Western Pennsylvanias a stern lesson. That lesson would come upon these Western Pennsylvanians, but whereas Hamilton had earlier pretended the revolt was localized uh, in that place, he now prepared a show of force calculated to include opposition joined by several other surrounding states and counties. Uh, from this, he concluded the need for at least that 12,000 troops, and he was out for more than the suppression of the rebellion. 
He wanted to make public examples of some of those rebels, and he would later write to Washington on November 11th, 1794, quote, Tomorrow the measures for apprehending persons and seizing stills will be carried into effect. I hope there will be found characters fit for examples and who can be made so. With the power of the militia acts behind them, an interstate militia of 13,000 was raised and personally led by Washington and Hamilton on horseback to quash the, the so-called rebellion. Now, these two rebellions, however, illustrate the power of the centralized militia and thus the ability for the central government to impose its will on its subjects. Before the Constitution, the people of Massachusetts could choose whether or not to support the call to raise a militia, and most did not. People were left free to decide if the cause was just, which is a much more biblical design. All of this changed with the advent of the Constitution. Now the standing army power was enshrined, and the Hamiltonian machine was in place to make it even more powerful. And even, quote, free, able-bodied man, every free, able-bodied man was forced into the slavery of conscription, whether they agreed with the justness of the cause or not. And many people did disagree, and Washington knew it. He was fearful that even the militia acts may not be powerful enough to force the raising of the militia. These fears were, of course, allayed, and thankfully, there was very little bloodshed as the overwhelming forces meted, uh, melted uh, any organized opposition. But that was never the point anyway. The point was to have the military force to, uh, military power to enforce the will of the central government despite its unpopularity. Uh, especially of its decrees. The very thing the anti-federalist had foresaw, foreseen some time before. Thus, while some 20 men were arrested in that raid and a couple indicted, only two were ever convicted in court, and Washington eventually pardoned those. And after all the public facade and exercise of overwhelming force, why finally pardon the only convicts out of a movement which he and Hamilton both had described publicly repeatedly as treason? because the point never really was to bring justice. It was rather to impose the will of the central government. It was to crush all possibility of political control beyond the taxing and warring dictates of Washington, D.C. And in this, the response to the, the Whiskey Rebellion was successful, and it was built on the back of the Constitution. In these regards, the United States departed further from the biblical standard of a free society, especially in the creation, expansion, and use of the military power. This change was small, but it was effective in the beginning. It was also a precedent for much, much more to come. Yes, the Constitution created this power, and it was used overwhelmingly to crush political dissent to Hamilton's tax scheme. But at least the national forces restrained, uh, remained somewhat small. Prior to the Civil War, the entire active peacetime militia stood at a total of only 16,000 troops. And at least during this time, those forces were not used beyond constitutionally achieved powers. Now just stop momentarily and consider what freedom has been destroyed military, militarily just to this point in American history. We've not even included the Civil War, but only the very beginning of it. Uh, beginning with Washington's appearance on the scene of American history, we have seen virtually every one of the biblical principles of war completely trampled. We've seen, uh, first of all, wars started unnecessarily for corporate influence and profit. 
We've seen wars waged by governments on their own people in order to impose taxes and prevent secession. We've seen taxes imposed by military force in order to pay war debts held by central bankers. We've seen the creation of a standing army, and finally we've seen military conscription of every able-bodied male. Now at this point it's helpful to recall the words of that political advocate of peace in Britain, James Berg, who provided a quotation we've heard before. That there is no end to the observation on the difference between the measures likely to be pursued by a minister backed by a standing army and those of a court awed by the fear of an armed people. No kingdom can be secured otherwise than by arming the people. Now indeed, there is no end to the differences. In fact, there has been no end to the differences. As America continued down the path of the more greatly centralizing of its army, uh, army and armed forces, without getting fully into the Civil War, its very early days saw Abraham Lincoln oppose a Supreme Court order by using the military to withstand a U.S. Marshal from serving a writ of habeas corpus. So thus we could add to the list uh, further points, the suspension of trial by jury and the unconstitutional opposition of Supreme Court order by the President backed by his standing army. This was just the beginning. Uh, in my book, I go into a much more lengthy version of this, but freedom was lost when the war hawks led by General Sherman applied their scorched earth policy throughout the South. Burned crops, destroyed livestock, destroyed property of all sorts, including innocent businesses, towns, churches, railroads, and other infrastructure. Freedom was lost when Sherman, uh, after uh, that war fought to maintain a standing army uh, after the war, that is, and then applied his scorched earth policy to Indian pacification throughout the West. That campaign ended after many trails of tears and most Native Americans herded onto reservations out West. Sherman also advocated using the standing army to suppress labor revolts and promoted a campaign designated at consolidating the state militias eventually into one big single national uh, system ruled by a military bureaucracy, which we have today. Freedom was lost as a coup led by private American corporatists in Hawaii was being suppressed by natives and the well-connected conspirators summed, uh, summoned up a group of Marines to squash the counter-revolution. Uh, President Cleveland opposed the actions, but McKinley ascended to the presidency and he annexed Hawaii, thereby eliminating the tariffs for his cronies that were down there doing business. Freedom was lost under McKinley and company administration as we were led unnecessarily into the Spanish-American War. The result was full-blown empire as the treaty with Spain uh, after that war gave us the Philippines and the government embraced those islands with a fresh war. The U.S. wiped out entire villages in the Philippines, erected concentration camps, and shot detainees for sport if they were found outside their huts after curfew. These were the same policies that the U.S. had used as reasons and pretexts to go to war against Spain and Cuba, now systematized by the Americans and made into a sport. In all, between 200,000 and a million Filipinos were killed, as uh, estimates vary. Freedom was lost when the military consolidation effort advanced slowly but surely, but gained uh, influence and steam under the Secretary of State Elihu Root and the Dick Act of 1903. It was revised and strengthened again in 1908 and again in 1916. 
this was the final, for the most part, metamorphosis of the American military into a full, single standing army, almost completely at the behest of an imperialistic federal government. The act was a drastic move, drastic move away from biblical freedom and toward the humanistic warfare welfare state. The military's own historian account uh, uh, laments the fact that prior to that act, local militias were simply too voluntary. A compulsory standing army was needed. State guardsmen, it said, quote, were under no legal obligation to volunteer, and a significant number refused either because of fears over the, uh, how their own unit would be treated by the regular army, or from concern over hardships that volunteering would impose on their families. Imagine that, guys actually having concern for their families. In other words, before the Dick Act, as it was called after the congressman, the state militias were closer to a biblical model. Moving away from this empire-hindering system was, in the words of one other military historian, quote, the most important national legislation in militia history. Freedom was lost further under the Wilson War State during World War I through the whole period leading up to FDR's New Deal and on into World War II. This period shows the final merger of the warfare and welfare states in all of their glory, and the powers ceded to the government during that time have not only never been returned, they have actually been increased and compounded many times. We'll see the transformation of the executive power via the use of emergency powers in the final uh, topic. For now, I want to talk about these twin evils of the welfare and warfare state. Perennially, the greatest centralizing power toward the total state has been war. This was noted in recent times by the uh, very famous military historian Martin Van Creveld. Had it not been for the need to wage war, he says, then almost certainly the centralization of power in the hands of great monarchs would have been much harder to bring about. Had it not been for the need to wage war, then the, the development of bureaucracy, taxation, even welfare services such as education, health, etc., would probably have been much slower. As the record shows, in one way or another, all of them were bound up with the desire to make people more willing to fight on behalf of their respective states. To focus on the field of economics alone, the Bank of England, as the first institution of its kind, originated in the wars which Britain fought against Louis XIV. Early in the 19th century, the first modern income taxes were likewise the product of war, as were both legal tender and its most important specimen, the greenback, that is paper money. Later, to cite but three examples, neither some of the early attempts to provide Social Security, nor the abandonment of the gold standard in 1914, nor the Bolshevik Revolution, representing the attempt to institute total state control over an economy, would have come about in the form they did had it not been for the need of the state to mobilize its resources and wage war against its neighbors. Now these are bold assertions, but the facts bear them all out. Van Creveld's last few examples refer to the early 20th century, the era leading up to World War I. Consider the changes in America under Woodrow Wilson during this war. 
The Overman Act of 1918 gave President Wilson expansive powers over every aspect of American life during this war. His centralizing efforts decked the government with countless new bureaus, the War Labor Policies Board, Shipping, Food Administration, the War Industries Board called the WIB, and many more, all with absolute power over their sphere. The WIB was one of the most egregious as it established a genuine military-industrial complex that would, not only, uh, that would only rescind in name after the war. It created a national moral hazard due to the nationalization of unions, mines, railroads, and many other industries. Uh, this created a monopolistic system that many businesses and groups didn't want to give up after the war was over. They began to use their influence to pass new laws to restore their positions. And as a result, the fact that Wilson disbanded the WIB immediately after the war, uh, there was still no returning to pre-war conditions. Wilson's move was only a political shift uh, for the complex, which resulted in Congress being in charge instead of the executive. And this meant that now all of the special interests in Congress and attached to it were involved in trying to control and get a share of the military-industrial booty. Uh, the structure created by the emergency control was still in place, it just had new masters. If national moral hazard were not enough, the Wilson War State also created it internationally. America became the conscious model for Germany itself, which copied Wilson in a final attempt to reorganize and win the war. It was the model for Lenin's war communism. It was the model for Mussolini's early version of fascism. All of these were modeled on Wilson's accomplishments, and all uh, of them had devastating effects for decades thereafter and helped bring about World War II, not to mention many more. The effect of the welfare and warfare states, together what I call the total state, is effectively to replace freedom with central planning across the board. After World War I in the U.S., there was a steady effort on the part of leftists and social Darwinists of all stripes to leverage the lingering centralized structures of the war state. The war had created a ripe opportunity for these elitists to gain control. A slogan arose during the 1920s. George Soule, who was editor of New Republic magazine at the time, popularized this slogan in his book, The Planned Society, in 1932, quote, we planned in war, why not in peace? It was a cry for central planning at the national level, level and the outright replacement of local community and local sovereignty with national community. Now, to do this requires the government to replace local community, genuine community, with the appearance of community at the national level. Now, FDR did this explicitly in his first inaugural address, March 4th, uh, 1933, in which he mixes the language of military mission with that of national community. He says this, If I read the temper of our people correctly, we now realize, as we have never realized before, our interdependence on each other, that we cannot merely take, but we must give as well that if we are to go forward, we must move as a trained and loyal army, willing to sacrifice for the common good or for the good of a common discipline. Because without such discipline, no progress is made. No leadership becomes effective. We are, I know, ready and willing to submit our lives and property to such a discipline because it makes possible a leadership which aims at a larger good. 
This I propose to offer, pledging that the larger purposes will bind upon us all a sacred obligation with a unity of duty hitherto evoked only in time of armed conflict. Now this type of thinking confuses local community with national community, personal morals with national ethics, religious language with political coercion, wartime with peacetime. But it was right about one thing. It would bind upon us all an obligation to the state previously only experienced under duress of war. Not only was the old freedom gone, but even what relaxation occurred in the war state after the war was now reestablished and extended into everyday life. Wilson's temporary war state become FDR's welfare state and every expansion of it since. Every political battle fought since has been fought in light of that new reality and only in terms of the welfare state. Since the New Deal era, the question is never welfare state or no welfare state, but what kind of welfare state and how big. And yet for all of his talk of willingness and sacrifice among the people, FDR couldn't have cared less about their willingness because he planned to solve the nation's problem uh, through pure central planning and control if he thought he needed to do. He says this further in that address. I shall ask the Congress for the one remaining instrument to meet the crisis, broad executive power to wage a war against the emergency, as great as the power that would be given to me if we were in fact invaded by a foreign foe. For the trust reposed in me, I will return the courage and the devotion that befit the time. I can do no less. He said, we face the arduous days that lie before us in the warm courage of national unity with the clear consciousness of seeking old and precious moral values, with the clean satisfaction that comes from the stern performance of duty by old and young alike. We aim at the assurance of a rounded and permanent national life. From day one, the warfare and welfare states have been evil twins constantly feeding and empowering the other, and war itself is the vampire which sucks the free blood out of their prey. War is waste. War is plunder. War is loot. War is the destruction of wealth, of morals, of fidelity and social bonds. Government-run welfare is all of those things, too. The two things are one and the same, fueled by the same lusts, toward the same ends, by the same spirit. After his Indian slaughtering days were all but over, General Sherman spent uh, the remainder of his final military days touring and lecturing students. During one speech he gave the line that has since been paraphrased uh, as war is hell was made famous. Now, there's little indication that Sherman was a religious man and in fact he seems to have been critical of religion for most of his life. The war is hell sentiment for Sherman was more about his scorched earth strategy than about religious teaching. Uh, but he had no idea how religious indeed it was. God's covenantal promises to his people concluded with a list of blessings that would come upon them if they obeyed, but also a list of curses that they would suffer for rebelling against him. The curses for national disobedience are found in Deuteronomy 28, 15 and following. Verses 15 through 19 and 25 through 33 are particularly relevant. Quote, 
But if you will not obey the voice of your God, or be careful to do all His commandments and His statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city, and cursed shall you be in the field. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be your, the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Cursed shall you be when you come in, and cursed shall you be when you go out. The Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You shall go out one way against them, and flee seven ways before them. And you shall be a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth. And your dead body shall be food for all the birds of the air and the beasts of the field, and there shall be no one to frighten them away. The Lord will strike you with boils of Egypt, and tumors, and scabs, and itch, of which you cannot be healed. The Lord will strike you with madness, and blindness, and confusion of mind, and you shall grope at noonday as the blind grope in darkness, and you shall not prosper in your ways. And you shall be only oppressed and robbed continually, and there shall be no one to help you. You shall betroth a wife, but another man shall ravish her. You shall build a house, and you shall not dwell in it. You shall plant a vineyard, but you shall not enjoy its fruit. Your ox shall be slaughtered before your eyes, but you shall not eat any of it. Your donkey shall be seized before your face, and shall not be restored to you. Your, she your sheep shall be taken, uh, given to your enemies, but there shall be no one to help you. Your sons and your daughters shall be given to another people, while your eyes look on and fail with longing for them all day long, but you shall be helpless. A nation that you have not known shall eat up the fruit of your ground, and all of your labors, and you shall only be oppressed and crushed continually." And while there's obviously not one-to-one -one correlation in every respect, mainly due to the fact that we don't live in walled cities and have siege warfare conditions, the main aspects of this judgment in history are the same. They are the destructive effects of war. They are the destruction of life, the destruction of property, the spread of disease, the destruction of the family, the economic hardships and scarcity, political tyranny and oppression, the triumph of rabid selfishness, low birth rates, enormous debt that remains for generations, no reprieve from heaven, who I call the ratchet effect. There's another saying among military men, again a paraphrase, the army, army is not an insurance company. The purpose of the army is to kill people and blow up stuff. Sun Tzu wrote the classic book, The Art of War, a pagan ruler who wrote the famous dictum, all warfare is based on deception. Governments, you see, must continually lie to prosecute war. They have to deceive the enemy for advantage, yes, but they also lie to their own people about the need for war in the first place, as well as the costs of war, the bloodiness of the war, the extent of the war, the long-term plans for the war, plus the promise things will return to normal once the war is over. It's all, or nearly all, a continuous lie covering, covering the entire face of the earth. Sun Tzu continued about the economic effects of war, saying, where the army is, prices are high. When prices rise, the wealth of people is exhausted. When the wealth of people is exhausted, the peasantry will be afflicted with urgent exactions, that is, taxes and provisions for the army. The state must continue its wars, no matter the cost, the debt, the burden, and it will all be a burden. And there you have it in a nutshell. 
from the most famous theoreticians of war in history, as well as from biblical law. War is destruction, death, lies, and theft. And there's a convenient summary of that in Scripture. The thief cometh only to steal and kill and destroy. If you don't believe war is hell, then you don't understand the Bible. If you still want American imperialism and its wars after hearing this, then you must think that hell is the cure for the world's problems. You must think that America is hell and that hell is salvation. But Jesus finished that verse by saying this, I came that they may have life and have it more abundantly. And we'll talk about that in the next section.